Tonight's Old Testament reading is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 26. It can be found on page 3 in your bulletin. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him as counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is the word of the Lord. So some of you that were here here last year might remember that our um, fourth Advent preacher was uh, Pastor Cyril, who spoke at our retreat. And so uh, early on in Advent in November, when the staff said, well, who's preaching? I just said, well, uh, assuming Cyril. And then uh, this week, uh, I forgot to communicate that actually that wasn't what the plan was. Uh, and they said, well, Glenn, it would have been good to know that. Uh, when did you know that Yancey was the preacher? And I just said, I mean, it wasn't that soon. It was probably like three or four weeks ago. <laughs> right? Uh, anyway, so my apologies to our dear brother, uh, but with us today is Pastor Ramargo Yancey. He prefers to go by Pastor Yancey. I know many of you know him. Uh, Yancey is an, a pastor at our Meridian Hill congregation. He's been there coming up on six and a half years, which is amazing, uh, and married to uh, his amazing partner, Crystal. They have four kids, one more on the way. Um, and, uh, you know, there's so many things that I appreciate about this brother's ministry. Um, but one of them, I have to say, is his faith always stirs my faith. Uh, whether he's leading worship, preaching, uh, it always stirs my faith and compels me, you know, do I believe this? Uh, do I believe? So uh, we're so grateful 
to have you with us, brother. We're going to invite you up and let you come and bring the word and pray to us. Let's welcome our brother. Good evening. So good to be with you this evening during this Advent season. You know, I really appreciate Grace Downtown. Uh, so many wonderful friends and uh, your pastors are amazing. Love them. Oh, these are my brothers and my, the, my partners in the gospel ministry, along with many of you. And so I'm grateful to be with you uh, this evening. Glenn said it all. And so what I want to do right now is go ahead and, and pray and uh, invite the Lord to come and touch our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we are before you. Where else can we be? Lord, we are here expecting from you what you have promised, your presence. So with your presence, Father, there's fullness of joy forevermore. And so we thank you for visiting upon us this evening. And we ask, come, O oh Lord, bless us. Break open our hearts that your word may drill deep in our hearts and change us to follow you and walk in your ways. That's what we want. We want the gospel. We want you, Lord. So would you come, touch us, change us, help us to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So tonight we want to be talking about to whom will you compare me? This comes right from this text here. God inviting his people to take a look at who he is as their hearts are wrestling with so many things. But as we think about this idea of comparing, we know what that is like, don't we? We compare ourselves with others all the time. Comparing oneself is a way of learning. It's, it is a way of, of thinking about our differences, and that's okay. We need that. We are a diverse church, diverse people on the earth. There are going to be some differences. There are going to be some ways that we're not like each other. And sometimes comparison can be a bit prideful when we think that we are too much for ourselves or more than someone else. It makes me think about growing up. I grew up with my cousin. He is like a brother to me. He's 15 months older than me. Uh, when we were teenagers, we both played high school football, and, and uh, you know, we began to lift weights. We got stronger, and, you know, we had big egos because of that, and we often liked to challenge each other, but this day, we got into a sort of tug of war over a window. I wanted it up, he wanted it down, and so there we were in the tug of war. I'm trying to push it up. He, I won. I just want to <laughs> let you know I won. But don't tell him. I had a, a, a bit of help. I had leverage on him. And so <laughs> sure he's stronger. Not, yeah, he's way stronger than me. But uh, it's like that, isn't it? We will compare ourselves. We will enter into battle uh, of comparison. We will have the leverage on someone. But you know, as we come to this text, we come to a people of God that are in exile. We come to a people who are disillusioned, disgusted, and de dejected because God's discipline is upon them. His judgment is upon them as they're in Babylon. And so this people, with no leverage to get out of their situation, 
They began to make comparison in their hearts to God. As we have viewed in the past several weeks of this series, God consoles his discouraged people, doesn't he? And so he's given them a word of promise already, as we've seen in this series. He promises comfort, his strength, tenderness, but he does this through his presence. As we see even in verse 5 in, the, in, the, in this uh, entire chapter, God promises the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. God is not going to leave his people where they are. He's going to show himself. He's going to show up. Are the promises of God enough for them at the hands of their enemies, though? Maybe we feel like this this evening, right? Are some of you tired from the journey of life, weak and worn? Have you been waiting on God to act on behalf of his promises? Have you been so worn by the ways of the world that you begin to wonder if God is true and if he really is a God worth worshiping at all? God knows that his people struggle with the same proclivities then as we do now. He knows that we are weak and dependent upon him. Even when we act like we're not, he, he anticipates an objection from, from our hearts. God anticipates that. He anticipates ways that we will live that push against him, that seek to move away from him. He sees that. And so he anticipates these objections. Maybe one like this. Well, God, you are able to make promises. I've seen your promises in your scripture. You're able to do that. But will you keep your promises? It's a question of God's faithfulness to us. In all of our watching and, and waiting, as we wait on the return on our Lord, we know what that feels like, don't we? That's what our brothers and sisters felt like in this Babylonian exile. Will this God really deliver us? Will he really come through for us? As one theologian asserts, we need more than seeing God through our own eyes, though. Isaiah shows us God through God's eyes. If we see God through our own eyes, we diminish him without meaning to or even realizing it. But if we see God through God's eyes, it changes how we see everything else. The gospel changes everything. A new way of seeing, a new way of living. Therefore, Isaiah invites us to make a comparison of God from God's point of view. And this is what we learn from this passage. Just one point from this passage, really. God is the incomparable one. He's the incomparable God. And because he is, this is our great assurance. Isaiah says through verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Of what likeness compare with him? Verse 25, he asks the same question. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? How does God show us that he is the incomparable one? God does this by showing us himself. (laughs) 
What else can he do? He's God, by the way. And what we learn here, we're going to look at several things that we learn in terms of what God shows us about himself. The first thing that we learn here is that God is the wise creator. And we see this right off the bat in verse 12. God asks this rhetorical question through this passage, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? You see, in creating the world, God works by giving intimate attention to creation. God becomes handsy, and he measures the waters with his hands. Has anyone ever been on the open seas? You get out there, and you miss the land. And it's like, I'm sick, seasick perhaps. The waters go forever, it seems. You're surrounded by it. The boat is rocking, and you're thinking, when are we going to get out of this? And as we are upon the waters, if you're traveling on a cruise or something like that, it takes a long time. Are we there yet? It's waters upon waters upon waters for miles around. God holds that in his hands. In his hands. That's nothing for God. God personally sees to creation. Right? He gets his hands in there, and then he begins to measure things out as he creates things. You know, a span is this distance between your thumb and your pinky finger. And so God is measuring things with his, with his hands in that way. They're so small to God. So only God has scales small enough to measure the dust of the earth, the mountains, and the hills. And you know, some scholars look at this uh, this, this verse here, and, and they see God working at his bench, you know, like he's a carpenter or something. You know, he's, he's getting to work with his hands there. I began to think about it. I'm, I was thinking that it's more like Shaquille O'Neal playing with my two-year-old's Play-Doh set, her mini Play-Doh set. Even the smallest matters, friends. God has thought thoroughly through them, through the implications He's weighed them, and everything is perfect. It comes together perfect. Isaiah asks further, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? You see, there's no other mind, heart, motivations that's higher than God's. God is on a plane all by himself. And even as we read throughout the Bible and we see verses like Romans 11 giving testimony to this, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And we see in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, God asks this question or says this, my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are the, over the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is bringing it into picture. How far beyond he is than we are in his thoughts, his motivation. How higher than he is, is of us. See, God does not need a counselor. He doesn't need a coach, a life coach. He doesn't need a, a, another committee or a consultant. And humanly speaking, there are some great consultants perhaps in this room. There are some great counselors in this room. We need those things. The kings need those things. CEOs need those things, but not God. God does not need those things. He is in a league of his own. God's wisdom is unaided, friends. You know, in the Babylonian religion, the creator God, Marduk, could not proceed with creating a thing without consulting Ea, the all-wise God. But the Lord has unaided wisdom. He doesn't consult with anybody. And then God, in his wisdom, he knows how we are formed. The Bible says we are wonderfully made. But see, we can, you know, as we look at our bodies and, and know ourselves and know our aches and pains, uh, we know we need healing. We, we know we need, some of us want a new body. Or, you know, it's coming, it's coming. And, but God knows the body intricately. Sometimes... We don't know what's going on when we do need healing medically. Sometimes we scratch our heads. Sometimes things just go away. God knows how we were built. You know, we have this thing called skeletons. We have bones. God knows what they're truly for. We're glad to have them, that we can stand up straight. But he truly knows in his all-wise knowing what they are truly for. Friends, God works all things together in perfect harmony for optimal flourishing. God knows that we do need his help. He knows that we need salvation. This is the path of justice, the right way of living, his righteousness, not our own. He knows that we need that. God knows how the universe is held together. He knows how the many Universes work together in harmony. God is the one who orchestrates the multiverse, and time travel is not a factor for God. God is in all places at all time. He's eternal. He's not bound by time. You know, God has to speak to us in ways that we get it, just like I have to speak to my kids in ways that they understand based on where they are. You see how God comes low to us and leads us and teaches us so that we would have deeper understanding about his wisdom so that we can walk in his ways? He does that for us because God loves us so. Wise creator. And God also, number two here, God is the great ruler over the nations. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, 
He takes up coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon will not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All, na- all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Isaiah turns our attention to see the nations. Behold, the small nations and the powerful ones that the people fear, like the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, are nothing for God. They may have had their many defeats and mighty armies and and much wealth, but likened to God, these nations are a mere drop from a bucket. You know, I have plants in my house. I love having plants in my house. Sometimes they talk to me. They, they droop over. They say, okay, I need some water. I'm thirsty. <laughs> Sometimes they become brown, and they say, I, I've had it. You know, I'm done. Uh, <laughs> But when I get the bucket out to water these plants, you know, if I water them and, and I kind of miss the plant itself and, and get a drop of water on the floor, that's nothing. It's just a drop. God is saying the nations are like that to him. Past, present, and future. A drop. Just a one drop from a bucket. Nothing to him as they stand before him. And God brings the scales back out. He says, on the scales, the nations are like the dust that's on the side tables in my living room. He blows it away. The islands are like that. And he turns our attention to Lebanon. And Lebanon was known for its timber. It it was known for its many animals running throughout the forest. And God is, is showing us that even how fine Lebanon is, with all these resources, you can pile up the timber and you can bring the beasts all together, but they are not enough for a burnt offering to God. Not enough. Not enough to satisfy what God requires. Only God will provide the atonement for the sins of the nations, and that's through Jesus and Jesus alone. You see, God loves the nations. He created them, after all. For this reason, he did send his son into the world as a baby. He did give him a life where he saw nations all around and the need all around. He did give Jesus a life where he was able to be acquainted with sorrows and touched by the frailty of man. He did give Jesus a cross by which he was slain. And as it says in Revelation, and by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is the depth of the love of God for the nations. And so as the nation stands before him, as his people compare God with the nations, nothing to God, not at all, nothing to him. And nation indeed has risen up against nation in our lifetime. God still values nations. And he is bringing his truth to bear in our nations. We think about America. This nation has many resources, lots of value, lots of people, lots of God's people here. God cares about this nation 
But this is not the only nation under God. All nations are. And God is working it together that he may bring many sons and glory from all nations, friends. God is the wise creator. God is the ruler over the nations. And God alone, friends, is God. Verse 18 here. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. The people of God are comparing God to an idol. You know, what is an idol? You know, I read Counterfeit Gods by Dr. Tim Keller some years ago, and he says this about an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give to give you what only God's can give. And we see that one of the first things that God says to his people back in Exodus when he brings them out of the house of slavery, God tells them plainly, I am the Lord your God. And then he begins to tell them, you shall not have any God before me. I'm the only one. And he also tells them, he commands them, that you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or anything of the likeness of that in heaven above or in the earth beneath. Why does God do this? Why does God warn his people? Why does he declare who he is? Because he's God and there's no other. Because he knows that his people left to themselves, they will begin to compare him with an idol. They will begin to say, we can make God come down into this little card figure. And this is what God will be like. It happened while God was there with them. Moses was up in the mountain. The people were down in the base of the mountain. And Aaron said, let's make a big symbol. You know, this bull, this calf, it's our God. This one brought us out of Egypt. Contrary to what God says. God says, no, I brought you out of the house of slavery. And so God protects us, doesn't he? When he deals with the idols in our lives, when he sees that we're giving our heart affections to something else or someone else, God comes in quickly, friends. It may feel like he's waiting a long time to deal with the idols. and No, he's not. He's working all the time. God is a jealous God. He will not tolerate that. Because he loves us so. And he knows that we do need protection from our hearts drifting away from him and drifting towards other things. God has given us magnificent gifts. Each other and lots of things. Jobs, homes, you name it. All kinds of things. It goes on and on and on. God would not allow those things to compete 
with him. God brings those things in our lives in proper perspective. They're created. They're created by us. They're not God. And so we have to do work, the work that God calls us to do, repent from having these idols in our lives and trust in God and God alone. Be honest. When the coping mechanism has turned into an idol, I can't live without it. I can't live without him. I can't live without her. And it doesn't matter. When those things creep up and we think we need them, God is always there showing us that, no, what we really need is more of him. He would not let those things take first place. God exposes idols for what they are. We see here, this is what he's doing. It's a bit of sarcasm. And Isaiah shares this process of making an idol. He said a, a human being crafts this. You know, he, he cast it. A, a goldsmith overlays it with gold. And then, you know, he, he chooses wood, maybe some cedars, some oak, some good sturdy wood that he think won't rot uh, because eventually it will rot. And then here's the kicker. The idol has to be propped up. You know, it can't even prop you up. You're you bowing down to something that's supposed to help you. You have to help it. What kind of God is that? You see, the thing about it, it can't move. It can't help you. These idols are man-made. They're of our imagination. And God tells us in Isaiah 44, he talks extensively about the idols. He said, hey, the thing that we hold in our hands is a lie, a lie that we've told ourselves that we have the most security from, that we have greatest benefit. It's a lie that we hold in our hands. And then in Psalm 115, he, he tells us that an idol have eyes, but they can't see, ears, but they cannot hear. They can't do anything for us. And anyone who bows down to an idol becomes like it. You have eyes, you can't see the things of God. Ears, but can't hear the gospel of grace when you're holding on to them. And in the end, idols always lead to death. That's how we become like them the most when we are holding on to them. It leads us to death. But you see, God is a God of the living, not of the dead. You see why he has to intervene in our lives when we're holding up an idol. Because God will have us be alive and not dead. God wants us to worship him and him alone so that we would know what it's like to have life. Because God is life. If you're in Christ, he's your all in all. Whatever you do, wherever you go, there's Christ. He's with you. He's gone before you. Oh, you think that your suffering cannot do Christ? No. These are the sins and the sufferings that he died for. We're joining Christ in his suffering, not the other way around. We think that we are. Oh, woe is me. And we do have some sicknesses, some hurt. We're in darkness in the, in, as we wait on Christ to come. We see this through the Advent season. It does hurt. But we need not to pride ourselves and pity ourselves the things that we have going on that are deeply hurting, uh, deeply confusing. These things are the things that Christ has already died for. 
So when we experience them, we're experiencing the true sufferings of Christ. We are not alone in them. And so God will come and refresh our hearts to let us know that we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering because we have life and life in Christ. That we can worship him because the idols, they're dead after all. They cannot do anything for us. But God is the living God. We live unto him. So we must repent and return our hearts to worshiping the true and living God. God, friends, is the wise creator. He's a great ruler over the nations. God is God alone. And God is the active ruler over the world leaders. Verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Another way of saying this from another translation, have you not been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these stories all your life? Don't you understand the foundation of all things? What is he talking about here? He's talking about how God has been intervening in the affairs of human life since the beginning. God has been speaking his word of truth to our hearts from the beginning. God has been speaking to his covenant people ever since he's given the covenant to Abraham. God has been speaking words of love to them. And Isaiah says, hey, are you paying attention? Remember, wake up. It's not your way. It's not the leader's that you're bowing down to, it's God who is coming in and speaking to you. He's always been speaking to you. We look out at the creation, and they give testimony to the glory of God. God is always saying something to our, to our hearts. Isaiah goes on further. He says that it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain? And spreads them like a tent to dwell in. And so as the earth is encircled, you know, we look out on the horizon, we see this bold shape. That's what he's talking about. You know, it's like this, 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 this encirclement of the earth. God sits above it. The earth is his footstool, as we learn from Psalms. The world is big to us. Lots of places to go and roam on this earth. But not so for God. God is from above. And so as he uh, proverbially looks down, we we look like grasshoppers to God. Small, you know? You know, people wonder why God gave us mosquitoes. Maybe that's why he wants us to understand, like, what it's like to look at something small and that we can just smash with our hands. And how before us is insignificant. So God looks, and what does he do? He doesn't crush us. God is not out to get you, friends. He's not out to crush you. You see what he does? He makes a home for you. He he spreads out a tent for you. That's what this earth is. It's our home. It's a habitat. It's not just, it's, it's a home where God wants to be with us. He makes it for us. Even as he is so much greater than us, he comes down really low to our hearts 
and he is with us. And God loves to provide for us. He loves that we may thrive in his hands and serve and prosper in his hand. He loves to flourish us, that we may grow. This brings great glory to God. You know, God says here, verse 23, he brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. He says here, verse 24, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. You see, God is here to love his people, to care for his people, to provide for them. But see, there are some leaders in the earth, princes of men, that want to take advantage of God's people. They want to rule like the Babylonian king, the empire. They want to rule the entire earth. They want to think that it's their way and no other way. The power has gone to their heads. Some of them know that God is who he says he is, but they still think I have the power. God says, Cyprus is my servant. And so is the Babylonian king as well who took his people into exile. They're serving on behalf of God. They may not think, think of it. They may not know it, but they are. Consider Pharaoh. God took everything from Pharaoh. Pharaoh, could, God showed himself to him, and he continued to harden his heart, harden his heart, in pride, harden his heart. God took everything from him. And you see, as we are in the world, sometimes we look at these rulers and people and high places, as we call it, they're nothing to God. There are people that God has created in his image, and they are to bend the knee to God. He made them for worship as well, even if they do not worship. But what God is not going to do, he's not going to have them harming his people, thwarting his plans. There are many world leaders that gather together and make plans about what to do with these people. They're eating too much or something. I don't know what they think about and plan, but sometimes it's not good. But see, God works through their plans because God is working all things for the good of those that love him. God is the real ruler of this world, active, taking care of all things. God is good to all that he has made, even some of the rulers that intent on doing evil. Who are the rulers in your heart that you're tempted to bow down to? Who are the people that you're afraid of when you walk in a room? They have status. They have wealth. And you are tempted to bow down to them because of the things that God has given them that they have. That's all they are. God's God stuff. <laughs> they're God's people. Perhaps we think they're stronger, better looking than us. But God is saying, no, I'm pulling the strings. I'm working all things for my people because I love them. They're my grasshoppers. I love them. I will give them green grass to eat and to flourish, a place to flourish in. So, friends, God is active. He's the ruler over the world leaders. We need not worry about them.
but God invites us to pray for them every chance we get. He says it in his word, pray for the king. Pray for them because they're God's servants in the world. That's what they're here for, for his plans, for his redemptive purposes even. Lastly, God is the watchful creator. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see stars. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. You know, we can go out and look at the night sky. You have to get up above the light pollution to see the, the Milky Way, the stars. It's breathtaking. It's overwhelming. And you know how it is. You get out there, right? You just say you're on the top of a mountain and it's clear. And it's like you're just taken aback. And you begin to count the stars and you lose count. It's like, wait, that's a shooting star. And you found out they're all over the place. It's like a light show out there. And it's vast, all-consuming. And, you know, we think about our star, the one that's closest to us, as we've learned. This thing is huge. It's big. The diameter is 864,000 miles across. Who can't even fathom that? This diameter is, 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 is 109 times wider than the Earth. Oh my goodness, and this is a big place too. And then we look up at the night sky, and there are about, you know, research says there are about 5,000 uh, stars visible to the naked eye. But what scientists are, are learning <laughs> and, and have learned over the years, now we, the, the count has gone up, guys. There are approximately 200 billion trillion. Stars in the universe. Oh my, who can count that? Which human can contain that? This number is so big, it's hard to imagine. They have to make up a name for it, you know? Uh, sextillion or something. I don't know. It's so vast and so amazing. God says, look up at the sky. I bring all these out. We're learning that the universe is expanding. It is ever-expanding. Because God is making more and more and more stars. We're learning that they're out there in this universe and the many other universes that we're learning about. God is vast, friends. God is vast. We can't even quantify God because we can't quantify our own Milky Way and the universe and the universes. And all these things are made by God. And he tells us here that God knows every star by name. But the thing that God loves the most is to know you, friends, by name. He wants to know you. You're the apple of his eye. He's turned his affection on you. You're made in his image, not the stars. He set his affection on on you, he wants you to know him, that he is watchful over you, that he sees you, that 
if God can bring out all the stars and know them by name, you are not forgotten, friends. Maybe someone here is tempted to think that they're forgotten, but you're not. God says throughout his word that he remembers. And the thing that he remembers is his covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham, his friend. He made this covenant, and we see this through Genesis 15. He told Abraham, hey, come outside. Look towards the heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. (laughs) And Abraham believed him, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God is saying, I'm going to make so many people and have, have you have so many offspring that it's going to dwarf the many stars in the universe. This is how much God loves his people. And see, we learn even through the New Testament, through Galatians 3. Now, these promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it was one. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ. God remembers his covenant with Abraham. And God intervenes into the affairs of the world by sending the word of life, his son, Jesus Christ. Why does he do this? Because without his son being the sacrificial lamb for our sins, we cannot become the sons and daughters of God. Jesus is the firstborn from among creation. It's in Jesus, not the rulers of the world, not anybody else, that we have our life. It's through Jesus that there will be a number that we cannot count with God forever and ever and ever. You see, Jesus is ruling and reigning over the affairs of the world. Jesus is part of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are one. And God has so loved us that he gave Jesus, and when Jesus went to the Father, ascended on high above the circle of the earth, he sent his spirit to dwell in the hearts of men. This is how we know who God is, by the power of his spirit. This is when we know we've gone off track and begin to compare God God, you really care? Do you really, are you really there? The Spirit leads us into the truth about who God is because there's none that can compare to him. There's none that can dwarf God. God gives us his mind. No, we cannot contain it all, but by his Spirit, we move in light of his character over us. God cares. God has set his affections upon us through Jesus, friends. And God shows him himself to us so that we would know as we are going throughout the world that none can compare with the great love with which you love us. To whom will you compare me, says the Lord. There are none, friends, so let us worship God. Let's pray together. (laughs) Father, we bow to you. You're the only God that we know because you're the only God. Help us in our hearts now and forevermore, God, to to accept you 
Lord, there are some here that are in the aches and pains of Advent. The creation indeed is groaning and waiting. We're waiting. Lord, you do come. You have come. You are with us by your spirit. Give us eyes to see this and ears to hear what you have to say to us every single day. Thank you for blessing us through your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.